to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond. I'm your host, J.D. Kathuria. Today, I sit down with Doug London, a retired 34-year veteran of the CIA clandestine service and an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University Center for Security Studies. He consults for private enterprises in the United States intelligence community, agencies on national security and intelligence, writes on foreign policy issues, and is an intelligence educator. A subject matter expert in counterterrorism, counterintelligence, the Near East, Iran, and South and Central Asia. Mr. London's experience as an intelligence community leader includes executive positions and field assignments at the CIA chief of station. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Before we get started on the topic of Afghanistan and what's going on, maybe if you can share with our listeners a brief overview of your background. Sure. I served in the CIA in their clandestine service for over 34 years as a case officer. During that time, I served largely across the Middle East and South Asia, a little bit in Africa and uh, some of the former Soviet states. I've also held executive positions at headquarters, largely in uh, the counterterrorist center, but also in our Middle East mission center. The topic we wanted to discuss with you today is our U.S. policy in Afghanistan. So it's in the news a lot these days. Maybe you can give our listeners up to speed. What is the latest and, and how did we get here? Well, it is rather topical. So a lot of the news has uh, surfaced the reduction in violence effort that both the U.S. and the Taliban are negotiating, which is supposed to put us on a pathway towards a negotiated settlement. Reduction in violence is not quite a ceasefire, as the United States admits, which is a bit unusual, sort of a new term for foreign policy, if you would, in that Taliban simply won't accept a ceasefire, a traditional ceasefire at this time, and, and for some good reason that maybe we could get into. The Afghan Election Commission also just as of today officially announced that Ashraf Ghani has won the election, the one they held in September of 2019. <laughs> that was controversial. He was up against his chief executive officer, Abdullah Abdullah, who was part of a power sharing agreement when the last election in 2014 sort of went off the rails. The question is, is there a future for the United States in Afghanistan that does not include endless war? There was a recent Washington Post article that talked about the policy from going back from 2002 to current day, or maybe, I forget when it ended. What was your take of that article? The recent op-ed that I saw uh, was sort of inconsistent with the reality that many of us see on the ground, but does align to the Trump administration effort. That is, uh, I hope that logic will prevail, that the Taliban will want to get out of there in this war as well and advance the lives of Afghans. The problem with it, it makes a lot of assumptions that aren't borne out by the truth as we see it. The Taliban does not have really much of an incentive to accept the terms we're putting on the table. Now, what do you think the biggest misconception is for Americans of the Taliban? I think Americans naturally associate the Taliban with 9-11 and its association with al-Qaeda, and that's valid. But the war has sort of evolved over the 18 plus years that we've been there. A lot of the Taliban foot soldiers who are there today aren't as ideologically aligned with the Taliban, but they're subject to their influence and subject to the practical leverage that the Taliban has, which is largely in the rural areas. So I, saw, um, I saw something in the news today about a prisoner swap. What's that about? So the first round of that, if you would, or the first significant round, was the Afghans turned over Anasakani, 
who is the youngest brother to the leader of the Haqqani Taliban network, Sirajuddin Haqqani, which is sort of the teeth of the Taliban, particularly in the east and the northeast, as well as two other senior Taliban officials. They're talking now that the next level would be a, a significant exchange of maybe, I've seen 5,000 Taliban prisoners. And the emphasis here is to use prisoners to leverage Taliban willingness to negotiate a more effective ceasefire and a willingness to come to the table to talk to the Afghan government, which they currently do not recognize and refer to as a, as a stooge or a puppet government of the United States. What's there any promises or guarantees that those 5,000 prisoners don't go back on the battlefield? None at all, really. I think that's obviously going to be part of the terms, the idea that we'll, we'll release these folks if they're no longer active. But the Taliban is hardly a monolithic organization in and of itself. These folks, really, their loyalty goes to their tribe, their region, where they're from. And if the locals see themselves needing to take up arms, they certainly will. Are there other major countries involved in Afghanistan right now? Quite a few. Obviously, Russia and Pakistan and India, primarily. Those are sort of the key players right now that can and do exert influence on both parties. And so uh, maybe you can just step back and what's going on in the other remaining regional countries from Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, that's impacting what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, the Saudis actually were one of the few countries that had diplomatic relations and recognized the Taliban even before 9-11. There's, uh, if you would, the Wahhabist influence in Saudi Arabia, that very conservative religious influence has always taken a liking to the Taliban's likewise very conservative interpretation of Islam. And a lot of money actually went from Saudi Arabia into into Taliban coffers before, and some will contend after 9-11. And so how about what's going on in Pakistan? Pakistan has the greatest interest, if you would. Uh, they share a long border with Afghanistan, which still is contested. The Pakistanis would like the official recognition of the Duran Line, which was negotiated back towards the World War I time that demarcates that border. The Afghans don't see it quite as fair. The uh, Pakistanis host millions of Afghan refugees in their country as a result of the war and instability. There's a plus and a minus there for the Pakistanis. That's a source of instability from both sides, if you would. One from the ideological side, where there are certainly very conservative camps among those refugees and folks that contribute to violence. There's also an economic give and take. There's jobs, one can say, in Pakistan that are lost to the refugees. But the Afghans also bring a lot of skills that contribute to the market there, only they're sending a fair bit of that money back home to their families across the border. So there's a, a vital interest for Pakistan to have some degree of stability in Afghanistan, but it's offset by a worry that an American victory outright or that of the persistent power of the current government actually advantages India, their, their true nemesis. Pakistan sees the world through the existential threat of India. And I think their nightmare is seeing Indian troops along their border at the invitation of the Afghan government. What would victory look like versus in Afghanistan? Victory is really a controversial word. Who's victory and and what's the threshold? For America, victory, if you align it with the reasons we went into Afghanistan in the first place, would be the inability of foreign actors to use Afghanistan as a sanctuary from which to plan, direct, and support terrorist acts against us here in the homeland or elsewhere. It's not necessarily a thriving Afghanistan, though that would be nice, and thriving also is hard to define, if you would. 
victory to the Taliban, uh, based on what they say, is the expulsion of all foreign troops and influences and the removal of the current stooge government in Kabul. The Afghan government in Kabul would define it as a stable country which could advance economically as well as socially. The agenda of the Kabul government is a lot more progressive than the Taliban's interpretation for what that means in terms of women's rights and education and, and such like that. And for Pakistan, some might see just the status quo kind of suits them. That's not what they would say. The Iranians have a vested interest. The Iranians and Taliban almost went to war before 9-11. Taliban is a, a very hardline Sunni interpretation of Islam. The Iranians are Shia. They're the natural enemy of the, of the Wahhabists and in terms of Salafists that the, the, the Taliban ideology puts forward. But the Iranians always play a very smart game of, of dealing with all the players on the table. They have relations with the government in Kabul, just as they have relations with the Taliban. For Russia, there is a viable threat from Sunni extremist elements within the borders of their former republics, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, that thrive at times and have been associated largely with the ISIS group, the Islamic State for you know, al-Shams. So they would like to deter that threat from coming back their way. And the Indians, likewise, as the Pakistanis, see the world through the Pakistani threat and would like to see the Pakistanis preoccupied. Is there any new groups in Afghanistan taking over from or filling a vacuum from ISIS? There's well over a dozen, some say 17 to 22, actual terrorist groups, Sunni terrorist groups operating in Afghanistan. ISIS's Corazon branch, which is their South Asian branch that operates there, is an interesting mix. It largely derives its leadership from folks who are trying to overthrow Pakistan, the Tariq Taliban Pakistan, groups among the Masudis and other tribal elements in the Atta, the frontier provinces that oppose the imposition of centralized law by Pakistan. A lot of those groups have drifted towards ISIS. Uh, Uzbeks have drifted towards ISIS, those groups. And there's a lot of room to operate. Now, ISIS is a common enemy, if you would. They are a threat to the Taliban as well. They threaten the Taliban's control. They threaten the Taliban's influence. And very tangibly, they threaten their ability to recruit fighters and develop finances among the people. Uh, Doug, what would you say to people who say, let's just take all of our troops out immediately and let them sort it out themselves? You know, sentimentally, I'm there as well. It's been a long, hard, bloody war. One of my sons was a Marine officer. He served there twice over a period of two years. I lost a lot of sleepless nights. But the reality is that's not going to make us any safer. The reality is Afghanistan, if we leave it as the way it is now, represents a continuing threat to the United States. So it is part of the settlement we seek to negotiate with the Taliban that they will disassociate themselves from terrorist groups like al-Qaeda I see that as uh, very unlikely to happen. Last September 2019, there was a very important counterterrorism operation that netted the removal, if you would, of Asim Umar, who was a key al-Qaeda associate. He was actually the leader of their South Asian branch. He was very close to Zawahiri. He was found in Helmand province being protected in a Taliban sanctuary. And the Taliban fighters fought against the coalition forces, Americans and Afghans alike, in their effort to try to secure his capture. The Taliban are largely led by Pashtuns, who also represent 42% of that country overall. And Pashtun Wali, their code of conduct and ethics predates Islam. And that's a code that gives sanctuary to their guests and protects them to the death. And they've taken that very seriously. Can you ever see Afghanistan being something akin to Vietnam? I think a lot of 
Westerners do overlook the resources Afghanistan has. Besides a population of 34 million, uh, it has significant mineral resources. It has significant agrarian potential. The Kabul government that is under Ghani and, and Karzai before him, at least on paper, wants to advance the country to take advantage of those resources, to be able to you know, engage in serious trading with the West. That's not really to the Taliban's advantage. The Taliban does better by keeping a firewall between the country, and they are not one likely to advance the sort of infrastructure projects which would lend themselves to economic advancement because they would like lives and lend to social advancement, which would threaten their control. Some folks like Senator Graham say that you have to look at Afghanistan as having troops there akin to Germany or South Korea. Would you agree? That's not an unfair alignment, if you would. The idea that our persistent presence of troops in Korea maintains the peace. And that is also part of what I've seen in the press anyway, as part of the annexes of the negotiation, that the United States would preserve an existing presence of a smaller military footprint, one along the lines that preceded the Trump administration, somewhere over 8,000, accompanied by counterterrorist platforms, CIA counterterrorist platforms. That's not unreasonable in terms of American interest and investment, maybe, but it would be inconsistent with the Taliban's proclamation that this is a war of jihad, is to expel the foreign forces. And though we might have some common enemies in terms of ISIS, I really don't see the Taliban sitting back and, and indulging U.S. counterterrorism raids against al-Qaeda elements or others that might be operating in Taliban sanctuaries. What's the best case scenario for Afghanistan, let's say, in 10 years? Afghanistan has tended to go through a cycle and where centralized governments come under the spell more of the regional warlords. Afghanistan is such a uh, diverse country, really. As I said, 42% Pashtun, there's uh, 27, 28% Tajiks, there's Hazars, who are Shia, Uzbeks, and a, and a number of folks whose loyalties will go first to their tribe, their ethnicity, into their region. Even before 9-11, the ongoing civil war was between the Northern Alliance, which was really a confederacy of the Tajiks and Uzbeks and the non-Pashtuns, and the Pashtun Taliban government. So it's very hard for any government in Kabul, be it the Taliban, be it Ghani right now, to project power nationally. There's not great infrastructure. There's not great cohesion. While Afghans do identify nationally as Afghans, they identify first with their tribe. So I think as things continue to break down, whether it relates and, and turns again to outright violence and civil war, it will probably again default to strong regional power lords just exerting control over their areas. If you could talk a little bit about what you're doing now, we talked before about your work at Georgetown University, you're, you're teaching a class, maybe you could talk a little bit about that? Sure, it's interesting. Very fortunate to be included in the Georgetown family, I'm teaching a graduate course on writing for intelligence and alternative analysis. The idea being to teach students who learn a very literary style of writing for writing for the IC, which is rather unique in the intelligence community, but fundamentally also to concentrate on the type of analysis that exhausts all the possibilities that mitigates against the, the potential we'll see 9-11s again and uh, the analysis that led us into war in Iraq in 2002 based on analysis that excludes some alternative arguments and information that would lend to a, a more objective and unpolitical assessment. Besides your work at Georgetown University, what else are you doing? I've been doing a fair bit of writing. 
in some of the publications about what's, what the relationship looks like between the Trump administration and the intelligence community. I have, you know, my colleagues are still working hard and diligently and I think very ethically to inform leadership. And that's really the mantra of the IC. You don't recommend, you don't tell what leadership to do. They're elected. It's their prerogative. But you try to present them the most exhaustive analysis that informs their decision making. And there's been too often perhaps a disconnect between the administration and what information they're seeing. Speaking of that, what's the biggest difference between Trump administration and the Obama administration as it relates to the IC? What has really been most significant is not necessarily the politicalization. I think any any administration is guilty of that. Uh, certainly, we see we saw it in the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the previous Bush administration. There's always a tendency to try to align what you see coming out of the community with policy. Sometimes to the to the danger of uh, fixing the facts. What I see more from the dynamic is this obsession over control. There's a great deal of interest to control the information the president sees that might be unpalatable or, or even embarrassing to the president. I think you see that most among the leadership of IC agencies, that there is not a matter of not coming out publicly, because that's really not their job. Their job is to speak in private and counsel the president behind closed doors. So there's, there's none of that. But there's even, if you would, uh, my perception of an unwillingness for anything that does not align with the president's stated belief and his opinion, which I think is at the detriment not only of the Trump administration, but the American people would like to see, I think, him getting all the information and all the options so he makes the best possible decision. Okay, interesting. We're close on time. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners that we haven't covered so far? in terms of like the Afghanistan and the policy of the whole region? We're not going to be able to just close our eyes and walk away from Afghanistan. I wish that we could. Lord knows I don't want to see my grandson fighting there as well, to be a third generation of my family doing so. But wishing things does not make them so on the ground. I think a healthy understanding of what's going on there is the best way to inform what we should do next. One last question. If the strategy of the recent peace talks don't work, then what happens next? I think the Trump administration is online to advance their next steps regardless, which is one of the reasons why there's no real leverage on the Taliban. It's rather clear they're going to continue to withdraw. It's rather clear they want to get down to a point of free Trump administration troop levels to advance counter-terrorist objectives. So the Taliban need not really do anything. They can continue to persist. And I think we're looking at at least a, a war of continued attrition for the foreseeable future. Okay, Doug, thank you for being here this morning. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes.